This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. I'm your host, Anne Foster. And today I'm bringing you an author interview with Avery Cunningham, who's written, I mean, 2024 is young, but absolutely one of my favorite books I've read so far this year, The Mayor of Maxwell Street, which it's set, I have a real weakness for the stories of like old timey gangsters and 1920s Chicago and just that whole vibe. And so when I first heard about this book, I'm like, oh man, this sounds good. And I read it. I'm like, oh man, I need to talk to her because it is based on the characters are fictional, but it's very much based in a real time and place. And so we talk about that in this interview, just kind of the, the, the part of Black history that she's talking about here, which is about uh, the Black elite of the 1920s, but then also kind of the diversity of Chicago in that era. It's such a good book. I was really excited to talk to her. So please enjoy this interview with Avery Cunningham, author of The Mayor of Maxwell Street. I'm joined by Avery Cunningham, author of The Mayor of Maxwell Street, which is a new historical fiction novel that is set in the 1920s. And it has all the 1920s things that I personally look forward to in books like this. It's got, you know, old timey gangsters. It's got the slang. It's got one of those clubs where you have to give a password to get into the club. All the things I love. Welcome, Avery, to Vulgar History Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really thrilled to be here and have this conversation with you. I love this podcast. So this is this is a real honor. Ah, wonderful. I and I really loved your book. So it's just like a mutual appreciation society going on right now. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I just mentioned like I love this time and place. So can you talk about the setting? Not just in Chicago. There's other other places are mentioned too. Chicago was really kind of the the main location that we spend most of our time in in the book. And that's really the, the driving setting of the book is Chicago in the 1920s. But our opening scene does take place in rural Alabama in about 1915-1914. And the essence of the setting overall is really around Jim Crow America and the Great Migration. So Jim Crow and its history really goes back all the way into directly after the Civil War, into the Reconstruction Era. But when you see it more on a national media stage in terms of how it's being reported, that's starting more in the early 1900s and then, well, of course, into the 1920s and beyond that. Can you talk about, sorry, just for everyone who may not know, Jim Crow, what, what is that? So, so Jim Crow is a system of oppression that came out of the South in the aftermath of the Civil War during the Reconstruction in the, in Ameri- in the American South. 
there was an era where there were a lot of policies and law changes to try to really create a more equitable existence for Black Americans, specifically in the South, as we came out of the, 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 the cruel aftermath of slavery. And Jim Crow was the backlash to those, those rollouts, those efforts at equality. So you would see certain, what, what you might describe as off-the-books types of laws and regulations in terms of, you know, there's a certain Black Americans couldn't go in certain restaurants or couldn't go in certain stores. You had, if you were walking down the street and a white person was approaching you, you had to cross to the other side of the street. You weren't expected to ride on certain trains. You weren't expected to ride certain train cars. You were prevented from voting if you couldn't guess a certain amount of marbles in a jar. So again, off the books types of regulations, but the consequences of not following these very strict laws of the day was violence and sometimes very often really even death. So that is the essence of what Jim Crow is. And even though it's most associated with the South, the essence of Jim Crow really did spread all throughout the country, especially during this era as we go through the 1900s and well into the 30s and 40s. So you're talking about it came out of the Civil War, but it wasn't until the early 1900s that it started being reported on or people knew it was happening. Is that what you said? And at least from, from my take on, on the research in terms of a national scale, of course, people living in this environment knew what the stakes were with, with Jim Crow. But with certain institutions such as the NAACP, there were a lot more active attempts to report and make known on a national, international stage, you know, this is what African-Americans are going through. The newspaper that's actually featured in the book, The Chicago Defender, was a really great advocate for reporting on the atrocities happening in the South. The Chicago Defender had a, a incredibly wide publication. Their, their audience spanned the entire country and even other parts of the world. And they did an exceptional job on making sure that Black Americans in the South could see what the world was like outside of the South, but also vice versa. For readers who were in more what we may call progressive, but truly it's, it's more of a um, superficial progressivism, as we talk, may talk about a little bit later with Chicago, but that they could see what was happening in the South and that what people were living with, what people were dealing with, how dire the straits were. So I feel as we went into the 1900s, the, the media attention on Jim Crow became a lot more prevalent. But of course, this, the essence of Jim Crow was existing, you know, in the 1880s, 1890s, 1870s. So the, the newspaper that you talk about in the book, so we'll talk about your main character. So Nellie, she is a lady journalist, which is the sort of character I always appreciate. It just makes me think of so many classic movies about like a lady reporter. But so the Chicago Defender that she's writing for that I didn't realize, I just assumed that you had made that up, but that's a real newspaper. Yes, yes. And it's still in circulation, still in publication. It is, when, when you talk about the civil rights movement and then the, the history of social justice around Black lives and the Black experience in this country, the Chicago Defender is a foundational element of that. The way that they reported on the different facets of what it meant to be Black in America. And really, when you talk about the Great Migration, which um, for those that might not be aware, was there were about two periods of Great Migration where Black Americans in the South really did, in essence, migrate out of the South um, because of the oppressive laws, because life there was just becoming so dangerous and difficult, where, you know, you saw Black Americans spread all throughout the country. Um, Chicago became a kind of um, representation of what the Great Migration looked like in terms of where a lot of Black Americans ended up migrating, but you were seeing Black Americans going into the East Coast, you saw Black Americans going into the Midwest and the Far West, just to really escape the, the terrible conditions that they were being forced to live under, that we were being forced to live under in the South at that time. So the Great Migration 
in essence, when you're talking about the Chicago Defender, the Chicago Defender was a great way for Black Americans in the South to read and see what kind of opportunities existed in places like Chicago. A lot of people do consider that newspaper to be one of the driving forces behind the Great Migration, just to give readers a view of what opportunities existed, what life could look like, and really encourage people and give them you know, places where they can go, people that they can connect with once they're there, to make the, the prospect of leaving the South all the more doable and realistic and achievable. So let's talk about Chicago itself, which I mentioned before, it's like, oh, I love like books about Chicago in the 20s, but I've never read a book about like Chicago in the 20s and the Black community there. So that was a whole other side of things that I wasn't, that really helps illustrate so much more was going on there than what, you know, I'm just thinking about like old Al Capone movies or whatever. But right. so talk mm-hmm. about the Chicago of your book. Well, Chicago of the Mayor of Maxwell Street is, as you were saying earlier, it's all the things that we love about, you know, the 1920s narratives. It's very flashy, very boozy, very provocative, beautiful clothes, fast cars driven by fast women. But it's, it's also a, what I attempted to capture was the great diversity in Chicago at the time. Chicago was incredibly diverse, ethnically, socioeconomically. Immigrant population in Chicago was vast and spanned a lot of different kind of origin countries. You know, in the book itself, we see the Greek Delta, which was a source for a lot of Greek immigrants that were coming to America at that time, really before 1920s and the early 1900s, but well into the 1920s as well. You see a lot of Eastern Europeans, you go to the actual Maxwell Street Market, which was mostly known for its, you know, Jewish representation. But also the, the great thing about the Maxwell Street Market was that it was incredibly diverse. Everyone was selling on that street. When you read narratives about the market during that time and prior, there's a lot of discussion about how diverse that market was, that stretch of road, where it felt like anyone who had something to sell could sell there um, and actually make a way for themselves in a more equitable environment. So I, I really loved exploring the diversity in, in Chicago at the time and showing how vast this city was and how so many different cultures and mindsets and ethnicities really created the Chicago of the 20s. Um, but also the Chicago of the 20s was deeply corrupt, probably one of the most corrupt cities in America at the time. And that was important to, to shine a light on. I didn't want to ignore that. It's what some people expect, of course, from 1920s narratives, but it's also very, very true. And the ramifications go beyond, you know, Al Capone and prohibition and, and booze and guns. It, it, that level of corruption had a direct effect on people's lives, more often than not on the lives of the poor, of the immigrant populations, of the black and brown populations. And that's important to shine a light on as well, that, that the corruption wasn't a victimless crime, that, that people were truly suffering under these types of administrations. Well, and I found that that was part of what, um, again, like I've read the book and I really love the book. Um, it was a sort of book, I was reading it, you know, during the work day or something and I, on my lunch break, I'm like, oh, I have to go back to work. Like I need to, and it was always some sort of cliffhanger where I ended and I'm just like, oh, what's going to happen next? It's a very dramatic book. But um, yeah, I think that's what I really, I really got in the book was the sense of just the the stakes and how scary it is. Because you know, when I think about like flappers and prohibition and speakeasies, it's like yeah, but like it's actually so dangerous. And your book really makes that clear just how dangerous it is. Um, can you talk about so the main character Nellie, who actually there's so much I want to talk to you about Nellie. I loved her. She's just like brave to the point of just like recklessness and just like beyond which is such a fun person to read about but just talk about her background because she's so 
she's from this wealthy family, which also brings a different element um, of understanding about the Black American experience at this time. Yes, of course. So to give a, a little bit of a, of a biography of, of Nellie Sawyer, um, her parents, and this is a fictional family, this is an entire creation, this is not based on any real individuals from history, um, but her family became extraordinarily wealthy through the breeding and selling of racehorses in Kentucky. And that does have its roots in history in the sense that Black Americans were a big part of the kind of Kentucky Derby origin story, in essence. A lot of the first jockeys were Black. A lot of the best horse trainers were Black. Until, of course, Jim Crow came about and um, certain white Americans didn't like seeing Black Americans in these positions where they were more visible, especially when they were winning and gaining accolades. So Jim Crow kind of put a, put a stop to that, to that rise. But what I tried to envision through the Sawyer family was what would happen if Black Americans were truly allowed, especially within the Kentucky horse space, to follow through on, on their legacy. What would that look like? And in, in that vision of the Sawyer family, they're an incredibly wealthy family, but they're also new wealth. And within the Black elite community of the time, new wealth was something to not judge, but just a, a level of suspicion. Because as you learn about the Black elite throughout the country, throughout its history, it's very much an insular community about maintaining the defense against the oppression, through, against the racist policies, where wealth and prosperity and education and business can be a way to protect yourselves from what so many are exposed to, what the, what the essence of this country is really built on in terms of, of systemic racism. So when you start inviting new wealth into that picture, it, for these characters in the Black elite at the time, um, at least on, and how I portrayed them, that could be a threat sometimes to, to the wall that you've built to protect yourself. Um, if you start showing cracks in that wall, that's when you become more vulnerable. That's when the world can maybe take a little bit more advantage of you. So that's a little bit about where Nellie's coming from in terms of her, her family history. She's lived a very isolated life in this, you know, pretty well-protected, isolated environment. She's always had what she's needed. She's always been looked after. And, and this is also something that I wanted to portray in the book because you never, or at least rarely see Black characters, specifically Black female characters in a position of prosperity. In popular media, Black female characters always seem to be in the midst of the struggle, in the, in the midst of, of the terror of being alive as a Black woman. And Nellie, of course, has not escaped that. And that's a lesson she has to learn that, you know, wealth will not save you. Prosperity will not save you. That you still exist as a black woman in this world, no matter, you know, where you come from, no matter who your parents are, no matter what your family does. But I did want to show readers an alternative to what we are conditioned to view as, as the black female experience in this country. I wanted a young woman who, you know, was, was driven around in Rolls Royces, who wore the most expensive diner, designer clothes from Europe, who, who lived in a house designed by some of the best designers of the day, who went to cotillions and balls and, and art galleries, because that's just, that's just to change the status quo, just to give readers a vision of a, a Black woman that you might not see often portrayed in media, and to kind of break down some of those stereotypes. And I love that. I love that about the book and her character as well. I think my my assumption is based on the way that she was raised, where she she didn't want for anything. She had the things she wanted. She's exposed to very beautiful things. I think that's part of, I would imagine, why she became as sort of confident, but also audacious as she is. Like she knows that she deserves the best. So when she goes into these situations, people are sometimes thrown in this book that she is so self-assured. Right which gives a whole other level to the people who she's interacting with, like in the kind of underbelly of Chicago. 
And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that really, you know, it, you describe it perfectly, that dynamic. She does come from a position of privilege. And that bias does feed into her interactions with many of the people, especially when it comes to the underbelly of Chicago that she interacts with. I wanted to portray a young woman who I see kind of represented a lot in, in the young people today, where you, you've been brought up in this, this bubble of protection. But you know that outside of that bubble that the world is falling apart and you want to do something about it. You want to be a part of it. You, you have this, this need to bring about change. And that's what Nellie has. She knows that the world outside of her bubble is, is dangerous and fraught and filled with unfair policies and oppression and danger and, and murder. And she wants to make a difference. She wants to be a part of that change. But she also has to learn how to let go of the biases that, that make those oppressive situations possible, that, that create a sense of separation between the people who may be experiencing those things and those who, you know, read it in a newspaper and say, oh, how terrible. And then, you know, you know, then you turn the page. And, and Nellie does have to come to terms with that. And Nellie's been a, a bit of a controversial character. I've heard a lot of people talk about kind of what you were saying, how she's brave to the point of recklessness. And I've heard people say, well, she's just, you know, insufferable and spoiled. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and 
I, I love that because I didn't want Nellie to be a character. I didn't want her to be noble. I didn't want her to be the one who was always in the right. I wanted her to make mistakes. I wanted the world that she grew up in to influence how she interacts with people. I wanted her to grow through that. I wanted her to come to realizations about, wow, I can't play with people's lives. I can't use real people in their situations just to further my own agenda. I have to be more aware and conscientious in how my actions are influencing the lives of people who, you know, I just arrive on the scene in their lives and I I overturn them. And that was something that I really wanted to explore. And I I love that Nellie's a controversial character because that's exactly what I wanted her to be. I love that. Well, and also just in terms of like this podcast, like if you've people who are listening to this know this podcast and you know this podcast, like I love, I love messy characters. I love complicated women who are, you love them or you hate them. And so Nellie really is in that sweet spot for me where I'm just like, oh my God, Nellie, like there's some, I'm not going to spoil your plot, but there's some scenes where it's just like, I assumed she's pushed to a certain point and I assume she's going to eventually give in or capitulate, but she's just like, no. And I'm just like, oh my God. Where it's just like, she's just so, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, I admire her bravery, but also it's like, there's a point at which it's just foolishness. And she learns what that line is. But especially in the first part of the book, she's just like, what are you doing? Oh my gosh. But then the other major character is Jay. And can you talk about his journey? Yes, of course. We first meet Jay in the prologue. And the prologue is set up as a kind of short story and an introduction not only to his character, but more what the world outside of the glitz and glamour of the 1920s is. I didn't want people to open the book and think, well, I'm just going to be attending Gatsby parties for the whole of this book. I wanted them to have an understanding that while we are going to have a lot of glitz and glam and 1920s revelry, this is the reality for most Black Americans of the 1920s at this time. And this history of Jay's is foundational for him. He was raised in rural Alabama. He's a biracial man um, with a Black father and a white mother. And having to deal with all of the implications of what that means for him and his life at this time, especially in the rural South, how he is at once ostracized, but also understands that that if just given an opportunity, he can rise above um, what he's been exposed to. And after a really tragic experience that you read about in the prologue, he, he leaves Alabama and we don't see him again until he resurfaces in Chicago under a completely new identity as a completely reimagined person. He's someone, as he describes in the book, who likes to make himself useful. He likes to know everyone, be of use to everyone, connected to everyone, because he knows that that is how he and his position, because of who he is, who his parents were, his his race, his identity, that's how he can rise and achieve prosperity for himself. And in terms of his relationship with Nellie, too, I, I really love those conversations where she would talk to him about how you know dangerous what he was doing was, how you can't associate with gangsters, you can't associate with mobsters, you can't put yourself in this, these positions. And he may say to her, these are my only options. I, I don't have the options that you have. So don't criticize me for doing what I have to do in my life, just because it doesn't align with your sensibilities of what a good life is. And that's a lot of Jay's essence of, of his character, of making really controversial and conflicting and difficult decisions to achieve what he believes is is the, the pinnacle of life, a peaceful, protected life, utterly opposite of the torment and the uncertainty that his parents and his family lived under in Alabama. And I, I love the the two of them, the two characters together. I want to emphasize this book. It's not a romance novel, but the two characters are, they have so many scenes together and just the way that they fire up against each other. They're, they're so similar in some ways, just in like their stubbornness and in the, that kind of recklessness, but also just the way that they counterbalance each other. I found it it's so fun 
fun. I mean, yeah, I'll say fun. The way that they interact with each other, it gets kind of fraught, but um, just the way that they are. So they challenge each other in so many ways. And I appreciate that. A long time ago, I read, I forget who it was, but anyway, an author said, like, if you want to have a strong female character, you need to have a strong male character for her to be up against. Otherwise, it's just a strong female character. And if you just make the men less so, then it's, that doesn't make her seem strong. That just makes the men seem weak. And so I really felt that in your book, that Jay was giving as good as he got. Like the two of them were really challenging each other constantly. And that really, um, it really showed both of them, just kind of the strengths, but also the weaknesses and the all the characterization of each other. I think they really brought out different sides of each other. Yeah, thank you. And, and kind of to go back to your point, this is not a romance novel, but it is, in essence, a way a love story. Um, Jay and Nellie love each other in the way that young people who feel seen and understood for the first time love each other. Jay takes Nellie seriously enough to care about her, to challenge her, to to push her to to do better and to be better. Where in Nellie, Jay sees someone who has all the ambition and drive that he's been criticized for having his whole life. So their their love story is is one that I think a lot of young people go through when when they when they have that immediate connection but it's also one that is built on you know a really terrible lie not to spoil the book but but it is also incredibly fraught and controversial and and complex and that's one of the, the my favorite di- parts of that dynamic that that they do love each other but it's it's a love that is built on a moment and they both come to realize as as you get through the story that that it's not it may not be enough to sustain a lifetime, that the connection that we have may not be the connection that we need right now. And just in terms of his name, like we meet him and his name is Jimmy at first, right? And then he becomes Jay. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, a person in the 1920s reinvented himself. His name is Jay. I was like, is there a little Gatsby inspiration going on here? Was that in your mind? Yes, definitely. One of the initial inspirations for the mayor of Maxwell Street was the great Gatsby. I wasn't setting out to do a direct retelling, but there is this wonderful kind of school of thought where especially African-American scholars have presented this theory or this rereading of The Great Gatsby where you can, in a way, read Jay Gatsby as a non-white man passing for white. And and that's a really fascinating reading. And I, I love that interpretation of him. And it's it's my preferred interpretation of Jay Gatsby in the entire novel now. And I wanted at the time to really see a novel that took that idea and really went with it, really explored it. What would it mean for a Black man trying to break into high society in the 1920s when it felt like everything was possible? When all of these old regulations and the status quo around society interactions are really breaking down in the aftermath of World War I, how could a Black man who wanted to break through the oppression of, of the American system, how would he go about that? So that was a lot of the the soul and the inspiration for the Mayor of Maxwell Street. And that certainly comes through in Jay. But I've never really set out to do a direct Gatsby retelling, but I, I love the themes of Gatsby so much. And I feel like they're really just primed to to the Black experience. That's so fascinating. And I, I would love to just to learn more from you about that side of Jay's story, because you do you describe him like he he is white passing. He has blue eyes, for instance. And so and then that that really shapes some of the opportunities that he makes for himself where he's able to go into places where people assume he is white. But then Nellie, like she has such feelings about seeing him do that. And what does that mean for him? So can you talk about that side of his character or just that, that part of the plot? Of course. Um, so Jay is white passing and he does use that ability to 
essentially be be a mirror. He he can make himself into whatever people want to see in him. And to be passing as a black person or a non-white person, there are certainly individuals of all the by POC diaspora who are able to pass, um, and there still are. And that is such a complex existence. And Nella Larson's book, Passing, really does explore this very well. Nella Larson wrote a, um, a novel actually in the 20s about passing within the Black community with the focus being two Black women. And when thinking about describing that part of Jay's journey and his story and his, his history, I, I really loved to play up the idea that this is something that people do for options. That, that there's always this this stereotypical belief that if somebody is passing, that means they want to be white. That is not always the case. As Jay himself says, I, it's not that I want to be them, I want their options. I just want to, to be free in this life. And that is the only way that I can accomplish that in these certain spaces. But it's also very conflicting because he still, he's, he identifies as a Black man. He is proud of his legacy and his identity as a Black man. But in certain spaces, he realizes he has to let that go in order just to be seen, in order to be accepted, accepted, in order to to just get the job done. And that is a hugely conflicting identity to dwell in, where you can never really know who you are. You can never be fully in yourself because you're constantly trying to play to different groups of people just so you can be allowed to to exist among them. And that that's one of the complexities of Jay. And I hope that as readers go through the story and learn more about him, they add that to the to the tapestry of, of who he is and why he makes the choices he makes. And especially how that brushes up against Nelly, who, as you, as you pointed out, has a lot of feelings about passing, who, who sees it as a kind of betrayal. And as she goes through this world of the underground in Chicago, she might herself come to understand why somebody has to make those types of choices and not to judge them for it, but more try to change the system that forces them to be that way. So I just wanted to, because we're, we're almost out of time, but um, so your book, <laughs> when, this, when this episode comes out, on your birthday. <laughs> so your book is coming out. It's being published. Is it January 31st when your book is published? What's the date? January 30th. January 30th, the book comes out. So it'll have been out for about a week when this episode comes out. And so what do you have planned in terms of like events and meeting with people and book launches and things like that? Yeah, of course. So in terms of after, after the February 7th date, um, when we're adding to these dates as we go, but the biggest um, event after that, after the February 7th, will be February 22nd, will be actually in Chicago at my alma mater, DePaul University, doing a, a reading room book signing and discussion around the book. And I'm really excited about this. I, I am giddy at the idea of talking about a Chicago book in Chicago, even though I don't live in Chicago. Currently, it's my second home. It's where I came into myself as a writer, as a professional, and I'm ecstatic at the concept of, of really discussing this book with, with the people of this city, of, of this community that, that raised me and, and made me, in a sense. So again, that's going to be February 22nd. It's going to be at DePaul University on the Lincoln Park campus at 6 o'clock. And it's free and open to the public. So um, if you hear about this event, if you're in the Chicago area, if you're in you know, surrounding neighborhoods and you, and you would like to come out and just join us for a really fun talk about about the book and Chicago history then then please please join us. Actually, I I recently was just finding out I was doing some investigation about whereabouts do most of my listeners live and there's a big hub in Chicago in like that Midwest oh, area. So a lot of people listening are on that area and so because I'm not there, you should all go on behalf of me because I wish I could go. Right. Your book is coming out, I mean, so the end of January but February, we're into Black History Month. 
So I just wanted to just sort of get your thoughts about, I love your book. Like I mentioned, well, just because the 1920s of it all, but also you're really illustrating, like you, you mentioned about the diversity of Chicago in that time. And so I just saw on your website that you have an interest in kind of these lesser known pockets of black history. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about, about that and where you kind of see this book fitting into that sort of the overall black history oeuvre, I guess. Yeah. Well, one of the one of my goals with this book was to do a really uh, as thorough as I can in the time that I have and the space that I have and my knowledge um, exploration of the black elite of this time. You have a lot of cameos of actual individuals who are members of the the black elite who are who were leaders in in industry, who were leaders in in the diaspora and the black experience at this time. And I, I've interacted with so many readers, white and non-white, who had no idea that this aspect of American history even existed. And, and I've spoken to other authors as well about how the representation of, of Black life in this country is so often mired in struggle and oppression and racism. And you, you never are allowed to really see Black Americans in any space outside of that, any space outside of, of, the, of the hardship. And in truth, the, the Black wealth of this country have existed as far back as the 1700s. And it's, it's such a vibrant community with such incredible traditions and and strides that they've made and the influence that they've had in this country. And I, I really wanted to just explore that. I wanted to give them a platform where they can be seen and understood by, by the popular reading public. And my deepest hope is that after people finish this book or in the midst of finishing, they, they read a name or a location or, you know, a company like, you know, Black Swan Records was one of the most prevalent Black-owned record companies at the time. They only existed for about three years, but in those three years, they sold more record labels as a Black-owned record of any company well into the 50s. And just little things like that. I hope you, you see that and you, you're curious and you, you look into it and you do your own research and you educate yourself a little bit more about just how diverse the history of this country and this region is. And in terms of Black history, it's, it's an opportunity to just understand a little bit more about what Black history is. Black history is more than the civil rights movement. Black history is more than Dr. Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Black history is the full exploration of what it means to be a Black American. And this is just another aspect of what it means to be a Black American as it's represented in this book. What I really found you really captured so well in this book as well is that sense of, so they're in the 1920s and you and I know that World War II is going to come you know, like the civil rights movement is going to be decades after this. But these are people who are in that moment. And what I think part of what I really love about the 1920s in general is it's such a time, I think you said this as well, of just kind of the paradigm is changing. Like suddenly there's new, there can be new opportunities for people. And it would have felt, and I felt this in your book, like maybe the options are there for people. Like they don't know what the future is going to bring. And I love that your book really sat there. You weren't ever being like, mm, little did they know this is going to happen later. No, like you really let them kind of live there and thrive in the moment. And I thought that you captured that so well. Well, thank you. And that, that's, I, as you said, that's one of the great things about the 20s. It was an, a decade where it did feel like everything was possible. That, that if you had the will to to make something of yourself if you had the will to to leave the cast that you were brought up in that that you could rise above but it's also as you were saying little did they know it was also an age of of blatant revelry and without the acknowledgement of what happens when all of this falls apart what happens when all of these incredible strides towards individualism that we've made 
are faced with, you know, the complete global economic downturn where all of this guild and gold is just going to fall away. And I did want characters to exist in that at that time. I did want them to feel hopeful because people in certain, in certain communities did feel hope. But of course, that, that wasn't the way it was for everyone. The, the Roaring Twenties did not roar for, for all individuals living in that time. And I wanted to explore that as well, that, that we love the parties, we love the cars, we love the clothes. But the Twenties was also an era of unprecedented violence in a lot of, er- a lot of areas and unprecedented corruption. And it's important to acknowledge that, that in our, I think in historical fiction, characters should be allowed to exist in the time that they're in. I don't want my characters to be oracles. I don't want them to constantly be weighed down by, by you know, a dramatic irony of, oh, in a few years, this, this the entire dynamic's going to change. These, yeah. these are individuals living in a time and a place. And the great thing about historical fiction is that you can really step into the minds of characters in that time and that place. And Really imagine what they would be feeling in the moment, how the immediacy of this world is reacting on them. And so I'm really glad that that came through for you. I I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Of course. I cannot recommend your book enough to all the listeners. I hope everybody reads it. I think it's everything we just talked about. This is why I was so glad you agreed to come on the podcast, because I just really wanted to learn more about the thought process and everything that went into it and what the real history was. But it's such a page turner. Above that, you know, like there's all this stuff that you're talking about, but the book is just like these characters making these choices, the world. It's so I mentioned, I was like, my lunch break ended and I'm just like, how am I supposed to put this book down? Like, it's so readable as well. So I, so I hope people, people appreciate (laughs) that as well. But yeah, best of luck with the, with the launch. This is your debut book, right? Like your debut novel. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. So it's, it's, it's it's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah. I hope that you can really enjoy all of, the, all of the stuff that comes with your first book coming out and connecting with readers and all of that. Yes, thank you. And this is one of my first podcasts. So, okay. so I, I hope it went well. I hope I didn't, didn't ramble or anything like that. But thank you. This was such a great experience. Rambling is welcome here. <laughs> it's a very conversational <laughs> podcast. But yeah, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to me and best of luck with your book launch. Of course. Well, thank you so much. And, and I really appreciate coming on. So again, the book is called The Mayor of Maxwell Street. When you're listening to this, it is available. Avery has a website, which is averycunninghamauthor.com. She's also on basically every social media. If you go on Instagram, she's at Avery Writes Big Books. There's links to all her social media from her website. Again, averycunninghamauthor.com. But also she has various events coming up. So February 15th, she's going to be doing a Q&A um, at Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. On February 22nd, she's going to be at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. I know a lot of you are in the Midwest. So go there because I can't go is what I would encourage you to do. But also everyone just, you know, get your hands on this book. You know, you can buy the book from lots of places, but also borrow it from your local public library. If your local public library doesn't have it, there's always a form you can submit to the library to suggest that they buy a certain book in the mayor of Maxwell Street. Honestly, it's so good. It's so good. The vibes are just like off the charts. There's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's about like a lady reporter in like oldie timey Chicago. Like it's just got all the things like the, just those things that I, I especially enjoy in so many books. Anyway, that is, that is this week's episode. I'm going to be back next week with more With another episode, as we continue to recognize that February is Black History Month in both Canada and the United States and maybe other countries. I don't know. So if you want to keep up with me, 
and this podcast. I'm on Instagram at vulgar history pod. And also you can support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Anne Foster writer. So if you pay at least $1 a month, you get early ad-free access to all episodes. If you pledge at least $5 a month, you get access to bonus episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk about costume dramas. We haven't done any old-timey gangster, like 1920s movies, but I should rectify that. Anyway, I talk about costume dramas in this bonus podcast on Patreon with Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson, as well as there's other Patreon-only exclusives there. There's the after show, So This Asshole, various different things. And actually, there's a new thing. So you can become a monthly member to the Patreon um, for whatever you want to pay per month, basically. But if you just want to listen to specifically just one of the bonus episodes, it's set up now so that you can just buy to own, I guess, a specific episode of Vulgar Peace Theater for $5 each. Um, and so you can you can find those to buy, but it, also you can be a monthly member at patreon.com slash Writer And... Merch is available at vulgarhistory.com slash store. Or if you're outside the U.S., the shipping is a bit better if you go to our alternate marketplace, which is vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. And you can always get in touch with me using the form at vulgarhistory.com or by emailing me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. Transcripts of recent episodes are available at vulgarhistory.com. Thank you to Evelyn Malik for providing these transcripts. And until next time, everyone, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.